Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Brian Ray here as always. And today we have on um, a gentleman whose newsletter I've been following for God, maybe about a year now. I don't know. It's been it's been a while. Um, uh, and that is the China Africa Project. Uh, and the guest is Eric Olander, who's a managing editor at the China Africa Project and the China Africa Podcast. Um, Eric, it is lovely to speak to you. I read your newsletter regularly. Um, and I know that folks like myself who are into the the kind of China space and the Africa space that it's, it's highly recommended by I know like Bill Bishop and others. So you do a great job. It's, a, it's an honor to get to talk to you today. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. And I'm really grateful that you subscribe to the newsletter and, and listen to the show. So I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Okay. So, you know, the thing what I love about what you're doing is um, Africa is probably my, my outside of the United States, obviously. Africa holds a, a very unique spot in my heart because it's the second continent I've ever been to. Not the second country, but the second continent. I've been to South mm. Africa, uh, Zambia, and Namibia. I was supposed to go to Western Africa right before COVID hit last year. Um, and so I got some friends in Africa, and I, I just love a lot of things about the continent. Now, there's and, – and, and for the audience's perspective, um, when I'm saying Africa, um, keeping it at a high level here because Africa is a very diverse place. It's just too hard to – this that and the other but by and large um I, I love a lot of a lot of things there it has a lot of problems though as well and that's some stuff we're gonna talk about here in a minute um and then china being on the the, the bush foundation for u.s general relations you know obviously that's kind of a special place of my heart so you you're kind of encapsulating two things that i feel like <laughs> i'm special in your heart yes so i did the real question is did you create this newsletter just for me is that was that the impetus here yes 100 percent. it was just for you ryan okay so that Every day when I write it, I think to myself, okay, what is Ryan going to want today? You know, well, you do a so, great job. You nail it every day. So <laughs> well, that's good to hear. That is good to hear, you know. So, so maybe give is. a little background of why, why these things, these two countries are of interest. Um, obviously, maybe for the listener who doesn't really pay a lot of attention to Belt Road or the other thing that China's doing in Africa, but also why are they an interest to you? What made you want to cover this topic? Well, let's just put a couple kind of data points out there for us to start our conversation. Think about it that in the next 15, 20 years, almost one out of three human beings on this planet is either going to be African or Chinese. So Africa's demographics are skyrocketing up. China's demographics are going down, but it's going down from a very high number. So we're looking at multiples of billions of people, two to two and a half billion people will be Chinese or African. So that impact is going to be enormous on geopolitics, on economics, uh, you know, the impact from climate change is gonna be tremendous. So there's just a lot at stake here. The other thing that makes Africa so important in the global scene, and it's something that is totally underappreciated by most folks in the US is the fact that this is 54, 55 votes at the United Nations. It's a huge voting block at the UN Human Rights Council. It's a big voting block at the WHO, at the IMF, at the World Bank. You go down the list of organizations and oftentimes they do vote as a block. So that makes them very powerful. Uh, they are the largest block of votes in most of these organizations. China has really zeroed in on that and is courting that. And the United States and Western Europe and, and Europe in general have, have really neglected that uh, over the past 15, 20 years. So, so that's something that's very important. The way that I got started in this is that my background is in Chinese affairs. I was a journalist for the BBC, for CNN, for AP, let's see, uh, France 24, CNBC, you know, the alphabet soup of international news organizations. And I always thought that my career was going to be 100% focused on China. So I started studying Chinese in high school in Massachusetts and then went to Taiwan to study. 
And I went to China for the first time in 1989, in December 1989, so about six months after Tiananmen Square. And it was uh, back then a very poor place. It was a place where we had to go get ration coupons to get bags of beans and oil. And there was no cars. There was everybody was on bicycle and there was no color back then. That was the really amazing thing. Back in the 80s in China, everybody wore black, brown, or a navy blue, and these, these kind of drab clothes, and there was just no dynamism. And I feel so privileged to have been able to see firsthand the journey that China's been on from the late 80s to today, where it's the second largest economy in the world. That trajectory has been just incredible. Um, and it, it's, it's really been remarkable. Then in the mid-2000s, I started going to Congo, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. My brother was working there, and I went out on uh, Thanksgiving just to go see him back in 2005 and didn't really expect to see anything Chinese in the middle of the Congo, right? So then uh, went out there, and uh, there was one Chinese restaurant in Kinshasa, city of 11 million people. You, so you take the picture, and you think to yourself, there is, in fact, a Chinese restaurant in every city in the world. There you go. Take it off the box. <laughs> Went back in 2006, and there were two Chinese restaurants that were there. I thought, hmm, okay. By 2007, 8, and 9, I kept going back every year. Something big was happening. It was just tremendous. It went from no Chinese to Chinese people everywhere. And these were Chinese people building roads, opening shops. There were signs in Chinese. Uh, you know, Huawei was starting to come in. And you're just like, wow, this is incredible. And in 2010, I moved to Kinshasa to run my brother's production company. And I started asking people, what do you think of the Chinese? Because I was reading the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. And their take on it was, well, China is colonizing Africa. China is conquering Africa. It's neo-imperialism. And, you know, I'm a big, you know, sub I subscribe to all these publications and I've been reading them my whole life. And so I had no reason to kind of doubt what they were saying, but it did feel very negative. And then I would look at the Chinese press and it was like, everything's great. Win-win. We're saving Africa. It's wonderful. And I was like, well, that doesn't feel right either. So I asked my employees, my Congolese quinoa employees, I said, what do you guys think of the Chinese? And they gave me these incredibly textured, nuanced, complicated answers. I like this, but I don't like that. The one thing they didn't do was adhere to either of the polarized views of China. They had complex answers. And I said, that's my story. And that's when the China Africa Project started back in 2010, when I just started blogging about my interactions with Congolese and with Chinese in Kinshasa and with the international community. And I really wanted to make sure that I stayed in that gray area, not white, not black, just solidly in that complexity. And for the past 10, 11 years, that's where we are today. And so in the newsletter every day, some days I write something positive about the U.S. Some days, the other, earlier this week, I wrote something negative about the African view. Other days I write something negative about the Chinese. And I'm constantly trying to look at this from all the different angles because that's where I see this story as, as being so complex and so multifaceted. And if you're looking at it just that what the Chinese are doing in Africa is all good, you're missing half the story. And if you look at it that the, what the Chinese are doing in Africa is all bad, you're also missing half the story. It's fascinating to hear you talk about kind of the nuanced stuff. I, I, read, I wrote a piece about, uh, I don't know, 
of months ago, talking about nuance over narrative. And this is a big struggle, I think, when you're trying to be, and I'm not, we have big name reporters uh, for big papers that are, that, that listen. So I won't, I won't say, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking to you guys, but, but for some of the media, and I think this really is a cable news phenomenon, maybe more so than anything else. But hey, here is our narrative, and we just pound this narrative home, bam, 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 bam. And then the narrative shifts. And then instead of nuancing out what was right or what was wrong, we just go into the next narrative. And so for me, I, 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 one of the things I like about kind of the independent media or, or whatever is even if I don't agree, I find that there is at least this, this desire to nuance it. And so for myself, I always talk about being a libertarian. And so I'm a libertarian, and I'm very proud of being a libertarian and, and be happy to debate anyone on libertarian ideals. But the world I live in is not very libertarian, right? And so right. I'm thinking, okay, well, how does this move work? Or why are they doing this? Or why might they? Why might this work out or not work out? Well, that's you're trying to put on a different hat. You're trying to be intellectually honest. And and you talk about China, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's in uh, Africa or Middle East or Europe. There, there's levels to it. It's, it's very complex, and, and it's one of those things right. that you know Let's from the it. from the U.S. side of things. One of the biggest frustrations I have. Uh, with the U.S.-China relations, and then this is the U.S. and the China, is the hypocrisy from both sides. Kind of the, when they're talking at each other, they're kind of going back and forth. There's there's a, there's a ton of outward hypocrisy. And to me, that, that muddies the waters. And so you've talked a lot recently about COVID vaccines coming to Africa via China. And that's something I've really thought a lot about, because um, if you look at somewhere like Brazil, they are reconsidering their stance on Huawei because of the, the vaccines that are coming in from China. Um, how, how do you take what's going on with the vaccines? I know you've, you've kind of talked about it a little bit more than I just teased there. So maybe talk about what's happening on the ground. How did yeah. that, are they being given? Or is it a donation for people who don't understand how that works? And then is China using that as leverage? Um, and then from the African standpoint, maybe take it from the perspective of the people on the ground who are concerned and want the vaccine versus the leadership. And how do you, um, how, how does it being viewed from those levels? Sure. Let's go back to May 23rd of last year. And that was the day of the World Health Assembly. That's the governing body over the World Health Organization. Chinese President Xi Jinping gives a speech and he announces that he's going to make Chinese made vaccines available when they are ready, because back then they weren't ready yet, as, quote, a global public good. Now, this is coming off of, remember, this is last May, this remarkable feat that the Chinese did in delivering PPE to all 54 African countries within the span of just weeks. And I say remarkable only because the speed with which they made that happen was absolutely incredible. And that was done through the Jack Ma Foundation. And again, much like the situation with vaccines today, African countries were left to fend in an, in an open market for PPE where they simply were outgunned and outpriced. And here come the Chinese in plane load after plane load after plane load, millions of tons of PPE coming in when they couldn't get them everywhere else. And so that was something that was really regarded as, as a big win for the Chinese, certainly in the optics space. So when Xi says, we're going to make it as a global public good, there was a certain expectation that they would do the same thing. Then on November 30th, they announced this big deal between Tsainiao and Ethiopian Airlines. Tsainiao, for those of you who are not familiar, is the big logistics arm of Alibaba. So think of it as Amazon Logistics. And they said, we're going to create this air bridge between Guangzhou and Addis Ababa to ferry in millions of tons of vaccines and millions of doses of vaccines to be delivered across Africa. So everybody kind of assumed, well, yeah, you guys have done this before back you know, last year with the PPE. 
Now you're laying the groundwork for vaccines. Rock on. That's awesome. What we have seen play out is very, very different. What we've seen play out now is the very selective nature of how the Chinese have distributed vaccines to certain countries. And one of the things that I started writing about this week was I saw a map of the world of where they've put their vaccines. And most of them are donated, but not all. Quite a few are sold. But I overlaid kind of a geopolitical filter on where they have distributed vaccines. It turns out Southeast Asia, everywhere but where I am right now in Vietnam, has received Chinese vaccines. Then the next area of the world that was covered almost entirely was the Persian Gulf. That too was also layered very, very thick with, with vaccines. And the last one was South America. And almost every country in South America is, is covered with uh, Chinese vaccines. And it's interesting because those are the three top geopolitical priorities for the Chinese. Here in Southeast Asia, this is going to be the primary theater of confrontation and influence with the United States now. And so it's not a surprise that vaccine diplomacy is really underway here. We are soon going to be awash in vaccines from the Indians, provided through the Quad, from the Chinese, and then obviously from people like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. The Persian Gulf makes a lot of sense. 35% of all Chinese imported oil comes from the Persian Gulf. Saudi Arabia is now the number one supplier of oil to the Chinese. Uh, Qatar just signed a 10-year natural gas uh, deal with the Chinese. So strategically, it makes a lot of sense to invest in the Persian Gulf. South America also hugely important to the Chinese, namely Brazil. So you talked about Brazil very quickly. Uh, Brazil is the main destination for, for, for vaccines in, uh, in South America. They're manufacturing vaccines. Mexico is also very big as well. But Brazil is a major provider of iron ore, of oil, of soybean. And Brazil is providing the Chinese with the opportunity to diminish its dependence on the United States and Australia for raw materials and commodities. That is the long-term goal of Chinese foreign policy is to reduce its dependence on any single region for any single commodity. And Brazil is playing a very important role. Interestingly, in all of that, Africa is not really there. Even though the Chinese have been donating, as you see in my newsletter, every day I track all of the different donations, but the volumes and the quantities are quite small, 50,000 here, 100,000 there, sometimes 200,000. We're talking a continent of a billion people here, 900 some odd million people. So when you're, don when you're donating or, or selling you know, a couple hundred thousand, that's really not going to move the needle. But the Chinese have done an incredible job in the optics space. And this is where the Americans have completely dropped the ball. We don't understand optics and soft power anymore. We are downright terrible about it. The United States is actually delivering uh, materials into Africa. Big C-130 Hercules are landing in Ghana and landing in Nigeria to drop off uh, materials. We take a picture of it and it goes up on the AFRICOM Instagram page and is not shared anywhere else. Ridiculous that these, these, these PR opportunities are being missed and that's allowing the Chinese to really own the narrative on vaccines, even though the amount and the contribution that they're making is relatively small. So they're winning this PR battle effectively on the cheap because the US and Europe just aren't really showing up to compete. And that's really what I find absolutely remarkable. So the news today that came out, and this is something that's been going on for the past few weeks, is the Chinese have donated PPE now to the United Nations Economic Commission of Africa. They vaccinated the entire Arab League Secretariat. They've donated 300,000 doses to UN peacekeepers. These are easy wins, easy. 
And, and you got to think that if you're in the Arab League secretariat now and the Chinese have provided you vaccines that nobody else can give you because you simply can't get them, you're going to be more sympathetic to the Chinese or to anybody who helps you out like that. And, and that's really the key from looking at it from the African point of view. And I can say looking at it here from the Vietnamese point of view, uh, they're telling us here in Vietnam that we're not going to get vaccines until at least the end of the year probably they've told us into the first or second quarter of next year. So we are potentially at least a year away. Why? Because it's important, Ryan, that you rich people in the United States and Europe who've bought up three to four times the number of vaccines that you actually need, make sure that you get vaccinated first, then people in the global south will get what's left over. And that may take a year to two years. That full vaccination in Africa, they're talking 2023 now. And that is, and so the Chinese show up and they say, hey, we've got something now. It's not a lot, but we got it now. So people go, hell yeah, bring them. I don't care. Give me a vaccine because nobody else will. Much like with the PPE last year as well. Well, you know, it's interesting because just to be clear, anyone around the world can have my vaccine right now because I don't need it. Um, so I'm happy to donate mine my vaccine to whoever wants it around the world. And problem is you need a massive cold chain to actually deliver that single vaccine. Yeah, I know. So that's know. a little bit problematic. I'm going to put it in my yeti. Better offer as it is. <laughs> but, you know, that's, so the biggest frustration, um, so again, libertarian, you can kind of understand where I would have come, come, come down lockdowns, but biggest frustration from the U.S. standpoint on, on all, all of this is, A, the lack of media coverage of what's going on international pre, pre-vaccine. Um and two, I don't think many Americans really realize the influence of when America or in the EU, they start talking and they start doing things, the downward pressure that goes on uh, uh, towards Africa or South America or wherever. Um, and so, you know, for the past year, there's not been a lot of coverage of, of COVID and how it's worked itself out in Africa or, or South America um, or you know, anywhere else, really, except for China. You got to get a lot of stories about China, but in Europe. But beyond that, we don't really follow as average Americans. Is kind of what's going on there. And so, when you look at you know um, how the lockdowns have impacted some of these places, and then now we're getting to the the, the vaccine distribution. I don't think Americans. And this has just been my my kind of prediction for quite some time. I'm curious your thoughts. I don't think Americans are probably quite ready to realize the economic toll that's gone on in Africa, um, and. Uh, and so how long or how hard it is going to be to kind of get things going again. Um, I, and so I, I don't know what, what's been kind of your read on the economic toll, because to me, it seems like um, I know there's been a lot of content, uh, discontent on the ground with people, you know, not, not having enough money to feed their family because they're in lockdown and stuff like this. Um, do you think that Africa vaccine or no vaccine regardless will be able to kind of jumpstart their economy and get, get things going again? Or are we in the long haul for that? Well, I mean, most developing countries have suffered disproportionately because they don't have the ability to print money the way that the United States, Europe, and Japan have the ability to do so. So what the United States did in Japan and and, uh, and Europe did is they either printed money or they just went out and borrowed a poop ton of money, over trillion after trillion after trillion. So that option is not available to countries in the global south. So they've had to kind of make their way through this. At the same time, the United States has been a real impediment to a lot of the demands that have been made out of places like Africa. So right now we have an issue with the uh, International Monetary Fund and the issuance of $650 billion of special drawing rights. Pretty much the rest of the world is on board. This is when the IMF generates money. And what it does is it allocates it equally to each of its member countries. Now that means that wealthier countries, the, the, the share is based on the size of your economy. 
So countries like China are going to get a large amount of money. And in the United States Senate, uh, Republicans are not happy that China, Venezuela, and Russia will, will get money out of this. People in Africa and other developing countries say, that's not our problem. What we need right now is liquidity. But the United States under Trump, and now it's the, in the Republicans in Congress that just came up yesterday as well, are blocking that. It is the United States that has governance over a lot of the mutual funds and private creditors and hedge funds and all of these different private investments that own a lot of the Eurobond debt. It is the state of New York's legislature that has jurisdiction over that. They have not re relieved or relaxed the fiduciary laws that allow the private creditors to actually engage in some form of debt relief. That has not happened. Interestingly, it's the Chinese who have been doing more debt relief and restructuring their debts in Africa than either the multilaterals or the private creditors. Multilaterals like the World Bank and the IMF have not forgiven one penny of debt. They've rescheduled some debt under the DSSI, that's the G20's debt restructuring initiative, but they have not actually restructured the debt in any different way. They've just you know, pushed it out. Private creditors the same way. And the reason why private creditors are so important in Africa is when we look at the interest spent on debt, that's the actual cash that leaves the continent, 17% of all interest on debt, and this is according to the Jubilee Debt Campaign, goes to the Chinese, 17%. That's a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. 55%, though, goes to private creditors. So almost three times as much interest is leaving the, con the continent to private creditors in New York and London. And so the United States has, an, has a role and an ability to actually change that. They have done nothing on that. The United States also has, uh, in, during the Trump administration, withdrew from the World Health Organization. That was not seen as constructive to what Africa needed. The United States blocked the, uh, the new director general of the World Trade Organization. That too was not seen as constructive from an, an African point of view. So the United States has not really uh, won the hearts and minds of a lot of people in Africa uh, over the past year. And that again has just created a massive opening for the Chinese to come in and to position themselves against this, to say, we are for SDRs, we are providing debt restructuring, we are for you know, supporting the WTO leadership, you know, we are multilaterally engaged with the, the World Health Organization. So whatever the US was doing, the, United, the Chinese were doing the opposite. And that was very, very effective. So in terms of Africa's economic future, there is a, a wide variety because this is 54 countries. So a number of the big countries, namely Kenya, Zambia, Ethiopia, Nigeria, are facing some debt pressure, no doubt. But these are also some of the fastest growing economies. Already they're being forecast to, to grow very, very quickly. The problem that Africa faces, though, is they have something called a risk premium put on their debt. So when they go out to the bond market to, to take out Eurobond debt, they pay somewhere depending on six to 12% more sometimes than say Ecuador or Argentina or others do in other parts of the world because people think that Africa is riskier. And what pisses off so many finance ministers in Africa today is that the COVID-19 economic downturn was not of their making. It was not because of economic mismanagement. When you look at the debt to GDP ratios across most of Africa, they were actually quite manageable and still are quite manageable. And they had been managing their finances quite well, even those with significant amounts of Chinese debt were still managing 
them quite well, given the fact that they were selling commodities like oil and cobalt that had quite high values because we're in a commodity super cycle. And so they were generating a decent amount of cash flow, keeping the debt to a reasonable level. And yet this thing came along and they feel like they are being forced to pay the price for something that they didn't do, both from the bond markets and they're not getting support from the international system. The last point that I'll make on this is that the international system from the Paris Club to the IMF to the World Bank to the United States Treasury um, should be ashamed of themselves, absolutely ashamed of themselves in how they've handled debt relief in the global south. The DSSI is literally the bare minimum by deferring debt payments for six months. That's all they did. That is all they did, nothing more. And so the moralism and sanctimonious attitude that comes out of a lot of these countries, and we can get to criticizing the Chinese in a second, please, I've got plenty of criticism for the Chinese, but on this one issue, the DSSI has been to me an abject failure because it hasn't fundamentally changed the equation of debt in the global South. And what that means now is that the next two, three, four generations, you know, for a century now, we're gonna be paying off this debt that again, wasn't of their making. Yeah, it's interesting because I think when you look at these issues in the US, the problem that the US has um, is that the issues that Republicans claim they're concerned about uh, when they're in power seem to dissipate and then when the Democrats are in power, they rise up and, and, and vice versa. And so there's no real cohesive thought in the US about how to handle um, you know, international issues and stuff like that. And so it, it makes it for kind of watching how these things unfold. You're like, well, okay, the Republicans say they don't want to spend. Well, and then they get in and, and then they spend. And the Democrats are, you know, they're not for war. And then we get in and we're bombing Syria. So th there's no real, it, it, from, from my perspective, it feels like there's not really a um, top-down from either party cohesiveness to a lot of things that they espouse. And so when you talk about these issues, um, you know, you have Republicans, and I saw before the, the sitting here yesterday, they're, they're saying that they're worried about the money being misallocated and this, that, and the other, and, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, I don't know, but, but it's like, we, we just, we printed trillions of dollars over the past, over the past year, you know? And so um, I, I don't know how that works itself out in the U S because it, it is interesting to watch this kind of what this, how the, the incongruity is playing out in the U S but also, and also abroad. Um, I, I, but from the Africa perspective, cause you said, well, okay, Africa is frustrated about the, about Trump pulling out of the, about the world health organization. Let's talk about that for a second. So, this is an interesting spot when I look at this because you look at the World Health Organization and they they claim that China was being forthright. And then when Trump announced he was going to pull out, oh, by the way, it turns out, well, maybe they weren't being forthright. Um, and, and so you kind of go to these these stories about China's influence and, and where they're positioning themselves. Um, and how, how does Africa perceive that side of the equation? So whether or not you think Trump was right to pull out the World Health Organization, some of his criticisms about the, the, the organization, I think, were, were right. Um, and so does Africa see that messaging as well, or is it not getting down there, no. or do they just disagree? No. How, how would you? That is not. They, these issues about the World Health Organization and the origin of COVID-19 is just not germane to the immediate needs that many poor and developing countries have. This is an academic exercise for many poor and developing countries. You, you know, who's right, who's wrong, I don't care. I've got people now that are suffering and I need help. 
And if the World Health Organization is going to be the, the body that does that, great. Because you have to remember that poor and developing countries depend on these multilateral organizations disproportionately. So the United States doesn't depend on the WHO. There's not really any value to the average American taxpayer as to why is the WHO important? Whereas in countries in many parts of Africa, for example, but other parts of the world as well, uh, the WHO not only facilitates uh, assistance, but it also will provide, for example, the, the medical testing. So they don't have testing facilities like the FDA that can do, or the NIH that do all of this stuff. So they depend on the World Health for all those medical standards. They depend on the World Health for a lot of public health policy and global health policy. Uh, they, they depend on it for so many different reasons that are practical and immediate. And you, you have to understand that the World Health Organization is, is an extension of the United Nations. It's a body of the United Nations. So it really doesn't have any authority any more than any UN agency does. It is subject to the whims of all of its member states. And so in that gives China an opportunity to really lay in very, very heavily. Much the same way, by the way, that the United States in previous eras also used the United Nations to its advantage and, and weighed in very heavily. Uh, you know, so I, I can't get into whether or not the COVID stories out of, you know, the investigation in Wuhan was, you know, was somehow altered or not. I just, I have no way of knowing that. You, you neither of us do because we're on the outside looking in. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I was referring to the story that, um, so in, in January, just, that, that, that the World Health Organization said that that that, um, <clears throat> that the China was helping turning over documents. And then when yeah. Trump announced he was pulling out, they, the, the AP read a story saying that, no, they actually weren't turning over documents. They weren't being helpful in the beginning. And they were kind of stalling. And so it, it yeah. was stuff like that. So, yeah, the origin it stuff kind of, kind of academic. Those kinds of things are, are really not germane, again, to the day-to-day -day realities of caring for people on the ground who need immediate help. And, and so I agree. I agree that I agree with that. And that's, I think, the hard part, because the next thing I want to point out is is Taiwan and um, and the book, The Dragon Gift. Uh, I mean, that what the WHO did with Taiwan. You remember there was that video where the the journalist was asking about Taiwan and the, the World Health Organization spokesperson just hung up. And you're just like, really? I mean, like, right. You have no better way of handling a sensitive issue like this other than just hanging up on the video call, which was just, it, you know, it was so ham hand, ham fisted and just stupid. I, I can't. I, yeah, I was just right. like, but, I, I think and I have to go back and pull this up. But I'm almost positive that more countries globally recognize um, North Korea than Taiwan as a country. So what do you think about the Taiwan issue? Taiwan like, isn't a country. So even if Taiwan is not a country and well, it's a very important <laughs> Well, you uh, don't want to responsible for starting World War III. Um, Taiwan is a nation, but it's not a country. And, and as such, because of its status, and again, that's not me saying that, that's not a value judgment, that is just, that's even from the official status of Taiwan. They aspire to be a country in some parts of Taiwan, but not all of it. Uh, they are not recognized by the United Nations as a country. Uh, I've lived in Taiwan for a long time. I, I've worked for Taiwanese companies. I speak Chinese. I am very, Taiwan has a very special place in my heart, but it is the third rail of politics in this part of the world. What a lot of people don't seem to understand is that World War II in this part of the world is still unresolved. It's a, it's a weird concept for Americans and Europeans because we see Saving Private Ryan and we think, well, World War II was 60 years ago and everything's fine with that. Well, no, it's not here. 
So a lot of the tensions over the South China Sea, over the the East China Sea Islands, the Senkaku, Diaoyutai Islands, over Taiwan, all go back to that period in the 40s and 50s. In the and it still is as hot an issue as you're going to get today. And Taiwan now is the the third rail for Chinese politics. It is what I call the Jerusalem for China. They, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, I went to the University of Hong Kong and I did a joint program with Beijing University. And so I was up in Beijing and I asked my professor. I said, you know, you guys have built yourself into being the the second largest economy in the world. Why would you? Why do you care about 23 million people in an island? Just let it go, right? I mean, let it go. Why would you want to destroy everything that you've worked so hard for, for one little tiny island off your southern coast? And and he explained it to me. He said, and it, and there's truth to this. Every person in China, from the peasant to the president, and I've lived in China for more than 10 years. There's 100% unanimity that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. And if the president is any president, not even Xi, and this was before Xi Jinping, but if any Chinese president was seen as letting Taiwan break away, he would, it would lose all faith and credibility in, in the office. And that would spur, that the, whole, the whole administration would, would collapse. It's so central to the narrative. And then the other part of it he explained to me, and I think this is very interesting as well, is that China is a country of thousands of years of history, 3,000 years of history. Mm-hmm. And the strength of the country has always been, there's a centrifugal force on the country that's pulling it away. So Xinjiang, Tibet, now Hong Kong, Taiwan, Inner Mongolia, these are the, the periphery of it, is constantly pulling itself away. And so only when the, this is the way that they see it, the emperor is strong when the borders are unified and strong. When the borders are fraying, the emperor is weak. And that's one of the reasons why these peripheral issues of Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwan are so, they're called red line issues because they are so sensitive because it goes to the legitimacy of the emperor. And if the emperor cannot seem to be holding this country together, the whole place falls apart. And that has been the dynastic cycles of China for centuries, is the country's borders are expanding and contracting. And this particular president, who is now a dictator, emperor, whatever you want to call him, for life, uh, he, he is very in tuned with that history. And those periphery issues, they are now today, the South China Sea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet to some extent. I only say to some extent only because Tibet is not anywhere near as restive as it used to be. Is those are where their focus is right now. And that is everything for them. So when we talk about the Chinese wanting to replace the Americans, and there's this anxiety in the United States that China is going to take over from the United States as the global hegemonic power. There's no evidence whatsoever. China wants to be the regional power here in Asia and it really focuses so much of its attention on those periphery issues in its own neighborhood. So that is a little deviation from Africa, but it is very, very germane to the Chinese kind of worldview. Well, yeah, and w- w- where I was going with Taiwan is, though, is that, and this is the, this is why the World Health Organization conversation is interesting. Um, so you have the, what you said, which is people on the ground, they're not concerned about these academic exercises. But when you look at some of the stuff, again, from the book, The, uh, the Dragon's Gift, I believe it's called, anyways, all but one country in, in Africa does not acknowledge Taiwan as anything, basically, is my understanding. And you could, 
Iswatini, the little tiny kingdom yes. of Iswatini, is right. the only one that recognizes Taiwan. Right, and so you know, I'm not a big fan of the uh, of the U.S.'s policy on Taiwan. I don't think it really. I think it's kind of a, a, a kind of a useless policy, but whatever. Um, what so, would you do instead? Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm happy to submit. I don't have a better answer. I'm also happy. I'm also happy to say I don't have a better answer. I don't think. I think. Well, here's the problem I have is that when you look at and this is let me just tease out my Africa point. We'll come back to the, the problem with Africa with the with the U.S. policy. Um, is that I'm fine. So I'm fine with China or whomever doing business. Free, I'm a free market guy, so that doesn't problem. That doesn't bother me. But do how do, how do you convey the potential dangers um, to a society where you say, okay, hey, you need basic needs, right? Okay, and we all agree that's important. That is extremely important. But oh, by the way, you're limited on what you can say. And in Africa is a place that I, you know I, I, I I'm concerned that if they're not careful that uh, they will find themselves not the political elite because the political elite understand the game, but the average day citizens realizing that, oh, they can't say this, they can't do this. They're pushed into a corner. And you're suggesting that because of the Chinese, right? Well, if you can't, if you can't, if you're, if you're saying that aid is dependent upon your, your status with Taiwan, uh, then yes, that would be the, 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 the impetus. No, no, there's, there's no connection there. The, the Chinese don't have any interest in, in that type of governance in, in, in places like Africa. Let's not forget that Africa does very well in producing its own asshole dictators. Uh, so That's they don't true. need the Chinese help. They don't need any Chinese help to do that. And we've just seen, this has been a bad year for democracy in Africa. I mean, we just saw the election in the Republic of Congo, 88, 89%, uh, you know, in favor, Tanzania, Uganda, uh, they're, they've had terrible kind of elections, you know, that are just, really nothing but problematic. Um, so no, the, the Chinese, that, that's not the issue. And again, a lot of people are over, and, and certainly Taiwan is not a, an issue in Africa. And you see in the newsletter, I do track every single time, uh, you know, there's a mention of it, but what I, I have the, the Jay-Z school rule of uh, foreign policy. This is, uh, so there's something that I call 4THKXJS. This is my little acronym. Uh, 4THKXJS, if you're playing at home, is Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the party, that's the CCP, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and the South China Sea. These are the issues that countries have been told or they see to stay away from. If you don't want to have any problems, don't talk about these issues, okay? And, and they're seeing what's happening in Australia right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody is watching what's happening in Australia, where China is choking Australia because Australia crossed those lines. And Australia started talking about COVID origin issues, Huawei putting warships in the South China Sea, and that was it, it crossed those lines. And so China then uses its vast, huge market power to start you know, engaging in what anybody would see as coercive behavior because it doesn't like what it sees. So it is punishing Australia. So it's going to, it's now been blanket banning one commodity product after another. And so African countries look up and go, you know what? I can't afford that to happen. So the Jay-Z rule of foreign policy is I've got 99 problems and Taiwan is not one of them or Xinjiang is not one of them or any of these issues. This isn't my problem because at the end of the day, what the average African policymaker, leader, finance minister, anybody in the ministerial level, they've got a double barrel shotgun staring them in the face in the form of demographics. 
This is a continent where the median age is 19.7 years old. In some countries like Nigeria, the median age is 17 years old. This is a continent of teenagers. If they cannot figure out how to employ these people quickly, they are going to face upheaval. They yeah. know it. Uh, so they we know it. we agree on I think so we agree on 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 that. Um, but I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that 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 ignoring those issues or being or or, play, or, or trying to play not ignoring it's just picking your battles in this life. Right. Okay. I mean, but they've got priorities that are much more important than Taiwan status. But you're right. So it's not about it's not about we don't need um, Zambia coming out and, and really hard on the Taiwan issue. I, we, me and you agree on that. I don't think that needs to be happening. But also, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that, that that these nations won't find themselves in a spot to where um, the the rules are are pushed a little bit further than, than this. And so when you when, so I give you an example. Um, last year before COVID, I thought I was going to go to West Africa and I was meeting with some uh, the African ambassadors of these various different nations to the U.S. And they all told me point blank that they didn't want to do business with China as best they could. Like they did, they, they were tired of how it was going. There's too much pressure, too much demand. They can't, they, you know, belt road, top down, whatever. And so, you know, now obviously they're talking to an American. So it's easy to say that message, but I, I, and, and we're working on a deal right now. With a, to their audience is what I think they're doing, to be honest true. with you. That, no, okay. They're right, the room. There, there's definitely that. But then I'm, look, I'm working on a deal and we could talk about this offline, but um, for a, a country, and they literally will not take Chinese money, even though it's Chinese nationals. Like they're, they're, they're refusing it. So there is a sentiment, it seems, that it's hard to read that, okay, hey, you have these these uh, people who are the, the kind of the, the political elites that are doing the deals with the Chinese, but then on the ground, is it is it is it is, it, is, it, is the sentiment the same, or is there kind of a bifurcation of how people are viewing, viewing China? And so that's what I always struggle to read with because um, now my friends in South Africa, they're like, hey, bring all the China stuff down here. You won't. We need it. We love it. And okay, so there you go. So you've picked up on one. There's this big problem of Africa as one. Exactly. No, it's, it's not a country. That's right. Africa. That's right. So the national interests of country X is different than the national interests of country Y. Let's be very, very clear here on, on Chinese money and Chinese financing into Africa, because a lot of people make the mistake in suggesting that Africa has a Chinese debt problem. Africa, let me just be super, super clear here. Africa does not have a Chinese debt problem. About five or six African countries have a Chinese debt problem. So we're looking at about $148, $149 billion of total outstanding debt. That is about 17, 18% of Africa's total outstanding debt. That is disproportionately allocated into Angola, which has about a third of all Chinese debt. And then we're looking at Zambia, Ethiopia, Djibouti, about 3 billion into Nigeria and Kenya. That leaves about 50 other African countries that do not have a Chinese debt. So we've been focusing a lot lately on the issues going on in Burundi. And I, you know, in Burundi, to your point here, they, they took a statement. I don't know if you saw this in the newsletter. They published a statement on Hong Kong last week, which was effectively written by the Chinese embassy in Bujumbura. Why? I can't figure out for the life of me. But the wording was all this kind of Communist Party rhetoric and the framing done by the Chinese. It would never come out of an African foreign ministry written this way. But they did. I don't know why. And then I look at, okay, how much debt does Burundi owe the Chinese? Nothing, like 
a few million dollars, nothing. Mm. How much trade does Burundi do with, with China? Nothing either, very little. They just, most of Burundi's trade is intra-African. So like, why are they doing this? And so it doesn't, again, it doesn't, it defies the simple kind of narratives. I don't know why. My guess is they're doing it for some future credit. You help me now. I that out. I was like, what is going on here? I never. (laughs) I know. I don't understand what it is. But again, it reveals the point that debt and dependency are not uniform across the continent. And that is oftentimes Americans default to that simple answer. Well, they're doing it because the Chinese must own them by debt. Not true. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Don't underestimate the, 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 the amount of bitterness that exists in places like Africa towards the U.S. and Europe. Don't, there's vast, vast reserves of it. They don't necessarily like the Chinese very much, but they hate the French a lot more. Well, if you go on, if you just go on, yeah, real quick, just for the listener, uh, if you just go on Audible and you type in Africa, I think that it, it just books on Africa um, because Audible kind of has a, uh, a, redu- a reduced selection. You can kind of see some of, some of the titles. That no, you're, I mean, that but, you're but again, even, even the Americans, you, you know, the Americans haven't been very active in, in Africa for a long time. The last major program that the Americans did in Africa was PEPFAR, the Presidential Emergency uh, Fund for AIDS Relief. That was all, that was in the George W. Bush administration. There's been no major program. I mean, okay, we have Prosper Africa, and we have these little tiny things, but those are not, again, moving the needle kind of programs. And so the United States doesn't give a poop about Africa, and it only started to care about Africa in a really big way when people like John Bolton at the National Security Council said, the Chinese are there. We care about Africa because we want to confront the Chinese and their malign influence around the world. So we're going to focus on Africa. In John Bolton's speech in December 2019, I think it was, which was when he announced the Prosper Africa policy, which was purportedly for Africa, but he mentioned China 14 times in the speech. So nobody in Africa took that seriously. Well, yeah, so Bolton, uh, I am no fan of John Bolton, so we can... Hey, but you may not be a fan, but he was the national security advisor. Right. Just like <laughs> I was not a fan of Trump, but he was the president. Well, and he did. Right. That was the American policy and the American presidency and the American worldview for that period of time. By the way, Obama wasn't any better. Uh, well, Obama only went to Africa on one visit at the end of his, of his tenure. So these guys, you know, they're just not, they're not engaged. Well, I mean, we can spend hours on the military industrial complex in the U.S. and how that shapes our foreign policy or, and, you know, so I thought about writing a piece. I'm glad you brought this up. The U.S. foreign policy is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And like, that's, that's basically how it works itself out. And so, you know, um, and it, 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 we just take all these things and we try to manipulate them. And it drives me crazy, which is why when you read about what China does internationally, um, you know, they do deals. There was a, and I don't know if it was your newsletter. Uh, I think it was you, you guys the other day pointing out, I mean, it's foreign policy anyways, pointing out um, all the countries in the Middle East that China's doing deals with. And, and there, the, the, the note, no, it wasn't you guys. It was a foreign policy thing. Anyways, and, and the commentator was like, well, I'm not sure how this would work itself out because uh, they're doing deals with Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, da, da, da. I can't remember all the countries of Libya. And, and, you know, these people, these, these countries don't like each other. And I'm like, China's perspective, they don't care. Like they're just, they're going to go do their thing and they're not going to get mired down into, into all of these. China's been phenomenal in, in, I don't know how they've been able to do this, but they are doing deals with, 
you know, the Saudis and the Iranians at, you know, and you're just like, well, wow, see, then okay. they're being, they're doing deals with the Israelis and they're doing deals with the Arab states. And they somehow have been able to rise above the fray. And I, I just, I, I don't know how they've been able, maybe it's just because people see them as mercantilists and they just, they don't get involved in politics. That being said, uh, just today, when, you know, the time of this recording, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was in Riyadh, and he's floating the idea that now he wants to get into the Arab-Israeli peace process. Now, this is not a new idea, and a lot of scholars have pointed out that there's not a single person in the Middle East that's actually saying, yeah, we want China to be the broker. Right. <laughs> no, that is not happening. And so nobody really wants it, but it might be just an easy, free political win because Wang Yi knows that nobody wants the Chinese to be that broker, but he can throw that out and say, listen, we're trying to be yeah. kind of a responsible stakeholder here. So I'm a little bit more cynical on um, on some of that stuff. And so for me, it makes sense. So, you know, Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia are all members of OPEC. So they they, they are happy to work together on deals when, when they want to. And they're also happy to have um, people get killed for senseless stuff when, when they want to as well. So for me, China working with those nations is not really a big surprise because they're all OPEC member states. And so I, I, th I think sometimes it's, it's, it's easy for us. Like, oh, we worked with OPEC states for a long time. I mean, we, we really only pulled back from OPEC states only when we became more or less you know, energy self-sufficient. But we were dependent on OPEC states the same way that the Chinese are today. I mean, what's sure. that? Sure. I, I mean, I, the commentator, from, I think foreign policy was what it was, but they, 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 they were surprised that China was able to pull this off. It's like, well, OPEC. Yeah. Like they're all OPEC. So I, I think, you know, when you get into the, the Middle Eastern foreign policy for the US, like we've kind of made it this, uh, we kind of taken the quagmire, if you will, or however you want to describe the Middle East, what's going on over there before we were involved. And we just kind of, just made it worse. We haven't done, done anything to make it better. So yeah, uh, I mean, when you look at what China's doing, it's like, yeah, sure, sure. Why? China's China comes to do business. Yeah, and to do business. That's, that. everybody. And that's what people want is that they want to do business. Well, and China's not coming for regime change. China's not coming to talk about ideology. China's not coming to talk about human rights. China's not coming to talk about all these different issues. Now, a lot of people can say, well, that's terrible. But here's the interesting thing that we have focused in now on Xinjiang as a critical issue. And today in, I mean, and this is, this is really fascinating to watch. China's going out trying to build a coalition to kind of fortify itself against the US European criticism on Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. And in Riyadh today, uh, the foreign minister, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi uh, brought up Xinjiang the same way he did last year in Cairo on the Arab street. Saudi Arabia, of course, being the caretaker home of Mecca and Medina is really important, but it shows you that the opposition to Xinjiang is not going to come from Muslim countries. Right. And the United States doesn't have an enormous amount of traction, specifically because it doesn't have a lot of credibility on caring for Muslim people when really that's not been our thing for a very long time. And so the Chinese are mounting a quite a, a robust defense, you know, building a coalition in Africa, in Asia, and now in the Persian Gulf of countries that are not aligning themselves at all with, with the United States and Europe on these kind of human rights issues. Yeah, I think I think yeah. So we can yeah I, the human rights stuff and um, and how the U.S. Uh, doesn't understand it's this goes back. I to just this is the hill that the Americans want to die on on, on this issue. No. I just I'm not convinced that you're going to change. Uh, and again, I don't take a, this is not me expressing an opinion for or against. I, I firmly believe that what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang is these mass internments, it's awful. Mm -hmm. 
There's no, there's no dispute in my mind that that's going on. I'm just not convinced given the history of what we know about the Chinese that we're going to be able to change their behavior on this issue. So, so yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm not, again, I'm not for much intervention politically. So my, my big thing is just been just, to, you know, if, you know, for all of the fear mongering that goes on in the U S about China, it's like, you know, the, the, the easiest thing to do for, for just the average American is just to talk about these issues, to talk to the, you know, to, to put, you know, businesses, if you, if you're frustrated with businesses in the U S who are doing business in China, you know, they're pretty sensitive to uh, uh, popular movements and public, public sentiment. Those are the things to do. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I, sanctions and tariffs and stuff like that. Um, it goes against my, my free market principles, a, but B it seems to only impact the disproportion in any ways. And so I'm not, I'm not, I, and then, well, the, the, East, the Americans paying the tariffs. It's not the Chinese. I mean, despite what President Trump thought. Well, you, you have that also. <laughs> I mean, it's not, I mean that's the kind of funny thing about it. It's not. It's not that. But it's again. It's we have to be. And I. I'm a. I'm more of the kind of mindset that in order to to beat the Chinese, we have to do a couple of different things. Number one, we have to be reciprocal. And what that means is that. If they hack our data and pull it out, uh, you know, they, they, they got the, the Office of Personnel, you know, so they have every American federal employee, their personal data. Well, you know, then we have a beautiful 30 or $40 billion national security agency that should be taking the Communist Party database and throwing it onto the Indian dark web. <laughs> if the Chinese steal our insurance data, well, then we go after Ping An, we take theirs and throw it out onto the open web. And they, it, it's that, that, that reciprocal. You keep hitting us, we keep hitting you. You, you, know, you wanna keep playing this game? We'll keep playing this game. They haven't been made to pay a price for their cyber espionage. And when you see, it's, it's fascinating, and you, you can appreciate this, when you look at some of the military hardware that they've got, I mean, it's just like, it's so brazen. I mean, it's like, there's, there's like an F-35 copy, which is just remarkable. And that's the way it is. And, and there's no crying in baseball. And I cannot, for the life of me, understand why, like, you hear all these Americans going, it's not fair. It's not fair. The Chinese are not playing fair. And I just, I'm like, guys, this, it's not about fairness. This is hard-nosed geopolitics. Get in the game. Fight. If they're going to do this, then make them pay for it but we keep giving him passes. Obama said, I got an assurance from, from Xi that he's gonna stop the cyber espionage. It didn't stop. And what did we do? Nothing. Okay. They just keep hitting us over and over again and there's no price to pay. And we whine about the fact that it's not fair. Okay, they're not playing by the rules. They're playing by a totally different set of rules. And we're trying to hold on to the old set of rules. They need to play by our rules. Well, they're not gonna play by our rules. That's just the way it is. And they are on the verge now of becoming the largest economy in the world. They're at about 72, 73% the size of the American economy right now. Their expectation is that within 10 years, they will surpass the American uh, in, in terms of economic size. If 400 years or 500 years of economic history tells us anything, it tells us that the largest economy in the world gets to make the rules for everybody else. That was the way it was for the British. It's the way it was for the Americans. And it's going to be the way it was, the way it is for the Chinese. And that is just an economic reality that we have got to stomach. Because companies are going to build for that market. 
the world will just circulate around the world's largest market and the world's largest economy. And I don't know if Americans have accepted that reality yet. Well, you know, yeah, I would say that the best thing for Americans who want to pigeonhole it as a, as a war is, you know, if you believe that the, the communist, uh, socialist, whatever you call the, the town on the spectrum of, of that, of that brand is the government, whatever you want to say, the planned economy, if you believe that works, then we should do that. If you don't believe that works, then you should do what, what the other thing, which is have sound fiscal policy, make sure your dollar is as strong as possible. Quit getting in these endless wars that are turning enemies. Quit charging business owners all these taxes and all these crazy laws when you can be charged for crimes when you go do business overseas. And when I was in the embassy of Beijing, I, they were complaining about China, you know, doing business all over the world. I'm like, guys, if I go and you know, and, and I go to Africa and I, I give twenty bucks to this farmer because I need to get his goat out and do this, y'all could charge me the felony back in the states. Like that's ridiculous. You have they to don't, though, just so you know. The well, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I think I looked it up last year, was like 14 people or 15 were. were well, I mean, there's it, the you know, oh, yeah, no, I know they don't, but, it, but the fear of the federal government you know, cracking down on you when they want to is, 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 uh, is the deterrent. The tax policy. Rather arbitrary. I mean, it really feels like the dumb and the slow are the ones that get caught. Well, no one's ever accused me of being sharp ears. So, <laughs> so just be careful there. But, but you know. But, you know you, you, so the strength at home thing, and this is what we're, we're hearing now, coming out of Antony Blinken and coming out of the foreign policy establishment in the United States, which is, you know, you know, we, because the Chinese in Alaska really hit hard on these issues of human rights in the United States. They hit hard on, on a lot of these things. And the, and, you know, Antony Blinken, you know, said, well, we're trying to make this things better. You know, that's the advantage of our society is that we're trying to do that better. And that has been the flexibility of our society has always been one of our strengths, but there's a real, body of thought that's out there right now, which says we don't actually have a very dynamic political system anymore. It's a quite a rigid political system because of special interests, because of our polarization. We don't have the flexibility to be able to move quickly and to take risks in our policymaking. And as a result, we're stuck in this kind of inertia where we can't really do anything because in China, they don't have Tucker Carlson banging down the door every night in primetime Fox to kind of say everything the president did was bad and mobilizing the Republican base. Similarly, we don't have the military industrial complex saying we need to produce, you know, Abrams tanks. We don't need tanks, but we're still producing massive amounts of tanks. Right. That's a rigidity in the policymaking process that really inhibits our ability to compete directly with a really a power that the Chinese, we've never confronted a rival like this. This is what's interesting. We've never confronted a rival that was as formidable in many ways as the Chinese are. Now, please, I don't want to make the Chinese into the 10 foot tall kind of monster. They are weak in many different ways. Okay. But they are not the Soviets. And that's a really important distinction to make. These guys have a lot more wealth. They have a lot more sophistication. They have a lot more power than the Soviets have in many respects. So I think we don't fully understand the nature of the rival in the game that we're in today. And I think that's a big problem. And I hope that people take more time to study Chinese, to understand Chinese history, to where they understand where they're coming from. It's I've spent my life studying Chinese history and language and culture and politics since I was 15. I am sad to see that college programs across the United States are shutting or cutting back their Chinese programs. This is not the time. The fact that we didn't understand Arabic or Pashtun really, really hurt us in those wars in the Middle East and South Asia. 
and you see these American soldiers and these American intelligence officers yelling and barking orders in English to people you know, in Iraq, which is just ridiculously stupid. And we can't make that same mistake in China, even though I think we might be. Okay, do you have just a few more minutes when we're up against time? Sure. It's more your patience of your audience if they want to keep listening. So, but uh, happy to keep going. Okay, just a few more. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So, just to be clear, I, I think when you talk about the military-industrial complex, um, <laughs> oh my gosh, we have spend it's, it's it's a frustration because a lot of our our foreign policy is dictated by about about that, and, and it's like guys, we're we're wasting time on on these things that you know. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years now. We've been in Iraq for, you know, what, 18, 19, whatever it is. Um, you know, what are we doing over there? Why are we bombing Syria? All that stuff's not very clear. And, oh, by the way, you know, China's competing. So I'm talking about that strength at home. It's not the um, – I'm not sure strength at home. It's just, just, hey, we've got to – if we just kind of quit doing some of the stupid stuff that we've been doing, um, fighting endless wars, um, you know, and, and strength at home is we got to invest in infrastructure. We have to invest in education. We have to become less polarized. That is strength at home. And those, those are things that I don't know. Those are difficult, difficult things for us to do. We have not proven in my lifetime now to be effective at building infrastructure at home. And that is, and I'm 50 now, so <laughs> that's a half century. And I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of infrastructure in my lifetime being built in the United States. Yeah, I think part of that is because the U.S. doesn't under doesn't really have a grasp of where it wants to be. Does it want to be, you know, more of a kind of a Western, uh, a European type um, feel to it? Does it want to be more 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 a free market economy? Who pays for this? When they pay for it? As I said early on, when the Republicans are in, you know, they're they're all you know, when the Republicans are out, rather it's yeah, we got to cut the budget, we got to quit spending, da da da. When they get in, then they spend, and it's like, oh man, it's just the same vicious cycle um but i do want to i know we uh, passed time so i do want to ask you this you you have kind of you touched on it a few minutes ago this um debt trap diplomacy yeah um and i know i know you're not a big fan of that so i, I will do it in two parts one uh, maybe unpack for folks who aren't familiar with that and then, and then two my, my question is this um i'm not a believer in um you know in, in necessarily that i have wondered what in the long run how many of these nations will balk at paying China back fully, and what might China's response be? Because yeah. um, I don't. I, that's that's to me where I look at. It and I go, mm. okay. Let's start with the yeah. debt trap yeah. diplomacy narrative. It was started in 2017 by an Indian professor. I'm spacing his name right now. And the way that he framed it, and this really took off on the seventh floor of the State Department, is this idea that, and also in Africa, quite a bit too this idea that the Chinese are intentionally lending other countries unsustainable amounts of money with the idea that they're going to seize strategic assets when those countries fail to repay them. And this was very much rooted in a 19th century or 20th century, early 20th century kind of narrative of, of imperialism and colonialism that, that when a country expands abroad, it does so in a very, in a, with a desire to conquer assets and territory and physical things. And that's not been the Chinese MO. And so people like Professor Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University, the Rhodium Group, which is a consulting firm, and you can go down the list and on my website, just type in debt trap diplomacy. And there are dozens and dozens of journalists, scholars, analysts who have looked all up and down the globe and said, there is no evidence whatsoever that any strategic asset has ever been seized because a country has not been able to repay its debts to China. 
So it begs the question of what are the Chinese actually doing? Loaning all of this money, is there a kind of plan or some geostrategic vision behind it all? And the answer is yes and no. The no part of that is the lending process is far more chaotic than people give it credit. This is not coming out of a singular entity. So there are two major policy banks, the China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank. They do a lot of lending, but there are state-owned enterprises that are lending. There are commercial banks that are lending. There are all of these different entities that are lending money. And they're not all coordinating with one another. And the first, and what we see from the evidence, and I'm just going by the evidence, is that the biggest priority for these loans is they want to get repaid. They don't want land or assets. And I, I was in Beijing, you know, before the pandemic broke out, and I was meeting with some folks from the China Exim Bank, and I was walking them through all the different rumors about the different things that they had seized in Kenya or in Zambia. And one of them was ZNBC. And one of the guys who used to live in Zambia, he laughed and laughed. He's like, have you been to ZNBC? It's two light bulbs and a stick of a TV station. We don't want that. I mean, why would I want a little tiny TV station in Africa that doesn't make any money? It's not, it's not worth anything. There's no logic to it in that sense. And then the other point that's very interesting is that in bankruptcy, who gets paid back first? It's not the owner, it's the investors. They don't want to own these assets because then they would have to manage them. And managing assets in places like Africa or South America is incredibly difficult. You have to deal with labor, government, corruption, police, you know, all of that stuff. And they don't want to do that. What they want is the cash. So, for example, in the Port of Mombasa deal, which was put up as collateral for the Standard Gauge Railway, wasn't the port that was put up as collateral. It was a big misunderstanding. It was revenue from the port that was put up as collateral. So if Kenya is unable to repay its debts for the Standard Gauge Railway, then revenue from the Port of Mombasa can be used to repay that loan, which doesn't seem unreasonable when you say it, right? I mean, if you don't pay back your car loan, the bank has an opportunity to take it from you or to garnish your wages or to do something to say, you're going to pay us back one way or another. Mm -hmm. That's not unreasonable in that sense. What are the, so what's going to happen if these countries can't pay? Well, we now know we're actually because one country after another is unable to pay. Angola, Zambia, Kenya, they're all in debt renegotiation with the Chinese. What do the Chinese want? The Chinese are restructuring and what they're going to do is they're going to kick this can down the road. Let's not forget that China is a $14.8 trillion economy. When we're talking about $6 billion of debt in Kenya, it's not going to break the Chinese bank. They've had $40 billion in Venezuela, $20 billion that's still outstanding, $20 billion outstanding in Angola. Yes, it's a lot of money, but it's not a deal breaker for them. So they're not losing any sleep whatsoever in Beijing that somehow if Africa isn't able to repay its debts, any penny, they're going to wake up broke the next day. That's not happening. But so if it's not assets that they want, what do they want? And there's no definitive answer. This is my theory after just looking at this for, for many years. They want influence. And I talked to a Chinese scholar who studies this. And I said, why don't you just get the PR win, forgive the African debt, stick your finger in the eye of the Americans and be able to say, see, no debt trap. Not only no debt trap, we've wiped out the debt. And what she explained to me is she said, no, because then we'd lose our leverage. And I was like, huh, what do you mean leverage? 
She said, well, we just want to make sure that we still have the ability to put our thumbs on the scale when we need to. And I said, well, what would be the issue? And here we go again to 4THKXJS. If all of a sudden Kenya decides that it thinks it's a good idea to invite the Dalai Lama, well, then all of a sudden that debt becomes a lot more real. If Ethiopia decides that it wants to get a little bit too cozy with the Americans and start kind of signing up to a bunch of the White House initiatives on Xinjiang or anything like that, guess what? That debt's going to come back very quickly. For now, they're going to push that debt out of sight. They're going to restructure it, reschedule it, so it's not going to be a massive burden. They'll write, they'll get their money back. They want their money back. They're not going to forgive this debt. That's very important. They don't do debt cancellation the way that the US and Europe do. But they're going to keep it there just as an option that they can exercise if they want. Now, that's another variation of debt trap diplomacy. They're not seizing an asset, but they're, they're compromising the agency and sovereignty of another country. I will tell you, though, that anytime you borrow money, you are making that deal, whether it's with a bank, a government, a multilateral agency. With the multilateral agency like the IMF or the World Bank, if you can't pay back, they do come in and they start restructuring your economy. There's a price paid on that. If you can't pay back a New York or a London bondholder, you get sued and your credit rating gets dinged to the point where the cost of borrowing goes up. There is always a trade-off. In the case of the Chinese, it's going to be in a geopolitical sense, probably rather than a purely financial sense. Okay. We will wrap it up there. You have been more than gracious with your time. I know it's uh, late in your part of the world, so I appreciate you joining us. Tell folks where they can find you. Um, well, this has been a uh, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. So uh, I really enjoyed it. Great discussion. Um, if if you, I mean, you obviously get the newsletter, but if your listeners are interested in these topics, uh, I'm a little more opinion, opinionated today on the show than I am in my newsletter. My newsletter is a very down the middle kind of thing. Uh, but what I do in this daily, I spend 12, 13 hours a day summarizing everything China's doing in Africa, the Middle East, and now increasingly in the global south. And it goes out to State Department folks, Defense Department, Foreign Commonwealth Office, DERCO in South Africa, diplomats, scholars. You know, they they kind of use it as a as a reference point and to save them time from kind of going through Google to find all the information. So if that's something that interests you, and I, I would hope that your listeners would uh, give it a try, uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. If you're a student or a teacher, it starts at seven bucks a month. And if you are a everybody else, uh, 15 bucks a month. Not too bad. That's pretty cheap. Uh, if you'd like just to follow me what I'm doing. You can find me on Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. LinkedIn, I post every day, also on Facebook. And uh, I'm super easy to reach. So just send me a DM on any of the social media platforms. I would love to reach out. And we do two podcasts a week and we have a free newsletter. So lots of information about the Chinese in Africa. And uh, also love having these conversations with people. So if you want to chat, uh, just hit me up. I think someone said you are the... China Africa guru. I, I can't remember how they put it, but well, so, so we will got to be humble about that kind of stuff. This is way more complicated <laughs> than my pay grade. Well, it, it's, it's so funny because uh, it's, um, yes, it is. It is, it is very complicated. And it even trying to fit everything into an hour, you're like, Oh man, I want to go here. Let me nuance that better than you, know, you say something like, ah, I probably should have said like, so anyways, it's, it's great to get you on. It's been fantastic. I love the newsletter. Um, and uh, it, it is funny because, I've, I've, like I said, I've been subscribed to Bill Bishop's newsletter for quite some time. And, and I remember and from time to time, he will be putting 
like, hey, this great newsletter over here I read. He put in your newsletter and his newsletter. And I'm like, ah, I'm reading both these. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's the god of, of China scholars and China watchers. So I, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm bowing down right now to Bill Bishop. <laughs> okay, well, everyone, thank you again for tuning in. We'll link to the China Project stuff in the newsletter so folks can go check that out.